The uh, scripture reading for this morning is going to be from Joshua and the first chapter and verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is God's word. Amen. Although we start in Joshua chapter 1, we're actually in Joshua chapter 23. So if you turn there, and it is in these uh, last two sermons. I don't even know how many we've had, 20 some odd. Um, the last two sermons and the last two chapters that the narrative ends with Joshua giving basically two farewell addresses. And uh, they sound very similar Uh, and what he says to those who are listening to him, to what God told him in Joshua chapter 1. So that's why we began there. Now many of the uh, great leaders in the Bible, uh, we have recorded their their farewell addresses that they would give shortly before they died. We have Jacob, who is the um, father of the twelve tribes of Israel, and he had his family, and after they were settled in Egypt because of what Joseph experienced, In Genesis, I believe, 48, he prays over each of his sons in view of their experience or what would happen in the future promised land. And then we also have Moses at the end of his life, at the end of Deuteronomy, giving a blessing over each of the tribes just before God takes him up on a mountain, shows him the promised land that he is not going to go into, and then God uh, takes him and he dies. Um, So now we have Joshua at the end of his life, giving his farewell addresses to the people who are now living in that promised land that was promised and then seen and now actually realized. So Joshua, though, may not know, he's been leading well before Joshua uh, for probably 50-ish years or so. Um, He was always with Moses. He was Moses' assistant. Uh, He was Moses' general, and then eventually he became his successor. And 
Following Moses' death, as we read in in Joshua chapter 1, just before entering Canaan, the promised land, God spoke to him and he said, you will have success as a leader if you follow my word as you lead. If you do everything that I say for you to do, to be strong and courageous, not just tough and bold, but to be strong and courageous in being obedient. And now many years later, possibly there's a seven years of battle that he led in. He died when he was 110. He was probably 80-ish like Caleb. Um, And so most likely this is closer to 110. It could be several years past the seven, maybe 20-ish years. But now many years later, many battles later, all of God's enemies have been subdued. They've all been conquered, if you will. The leaders of Israel have been appointed to protect the geographic boundaries of the land. So they've apportioned to each tribe. There's leaders for all those tribes, and they are to literally protect the boundaries so that they're not attacked. You also have the priests that have been established throughout the Levitical cities to protect the spiritual boundaries of the people to ensure that in those portions that they are worshiping purely. And now, with the land pretty much at rest, is what the Bible says, you have the faithful leader who's a little bit restless. Joshua, as he thinks forward to the faith of the generations to come, the next people that will be leading. And we see how well that worked out in the book of Judges. But here's how he begins in verse 1. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies... And Joshua was old and well advanced in years. Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. Now, Joshua uh, basically gathers the leaders of Israel. We'll see next week he gathers all the people a little bit differently. But he gathers a large number of the leaders of Israel, and he tells them, I'm old. And in verse 14, he basically says, I'm about to die. So we know this is his farewell, funeral-ish address. And unlike Joshua, when I, maybe you too, consider my mortality, like if I knew when I was going to die, if I knew the end was near, if I'm honest, my thoughts are are fairly self-centered. I'm typically thinking about um, how I might live differently in those last few days I might have. Um, Or... If I know when I'm going to pass on, I start thinking about all the regrets I had or how maybe I would have lived differently um, had I been given more time or a redo. And then there's the, the kick the bucket list that became popular with the movie The Bucket List, where you pretty much have your list of things to do, your places to go, uh, the wrongs that you want to right so that your life can, you, know, you can check it off and go, okay, I, I, my life's complete I've done everything I had hoped to accomplish. And there's nothing inherently wrong with a bucket list. I guess I, I kind of have mine. I've never really thought too much about it. But there's nothing wrong with them until that list, whatever's on it, tempts you to believe that true joy or true satisfaction can actually come from anything in this world. That's where it may become a problem. And so you have Joshua here that, quite frankly, he don't have one. He doesn't have a bucket list. 
There's no list of things he hopes to accomplish before he dies. He, without doubt, has a measure for what is desirable, meaningful, and successful, and it's not of this world. Which, let's be frank, that's pretty different than how we live. We all have measures of success and, and, and levels of discontentment based off of not meeting those measures of success. But Joshua is content. Joshua, I believe, is successful in his eyes. Joshua, catch this, is fully satisfied with who God made him to be. He's fully satisfied with what God gave him to do. And I believe he's fully satisfied and content with what God blessed him with and didn't. He does not have a bucket list. He is now at the end of his life with only one thing to do is to tell the next generation, his sons, his family, his friends, those he's in, you know, being looked up to, what the key to success is. You have a guy that is basically concerned about his legacy. What is he going to impart to the next generation? And I just don't know if we really think like that. If we think about legacy, if we think about what's going to be communicated and given as the key to success. And quite frankly, I don't think a lot of us are going to get the opportunity to give a farewell address like Joshua does here because death seems to surprise us, pretty, pretty much all of us. And I, I recently officiated a funeral that of a guy I didn't know. He may have read about in the paper. It was a 34-year-old guy that died in a motorcycle accident. And his family was from North Carolina, South Carolina, and they emailed me, and by a series of events, I agreed to do this funeral. I don't know if he was a believer. Most of his family was not. Most of his friends were not. But funerals, it was a really a, a moving funeral for me, not because of the funeral, but just funerals are a, a very strange experience. Um, almost without fail, funerals uh, make the deceased individual, whoever it is, out to be um, a saint. Believe it or not. I mean, they, they end up sounding like the most amazing, incredible person that ever walked the face of the earth. And you feel like, I didn't know this guy, but I'm like, dude, I wish I would know this guy because he transformed all these lives. And there's, again... I understand the idea of, of celebrating those kind of things, but very rarely I've never had the experience where you had a guy like, you know, put, put a tape in or, or him able to give their farewell address of like the one thing if they could say. But strangely, as you have those, if, you, if you're at a funeral, I think if you listen closely through the words of, of people, the stories of friends and family, you can actually hear their farewell address. And what I mean is, you begin to hear those, those last words of the deceased, those things that they really considered of most important, that, that little bit of wisdom, that essential truth, the thing that they value most, if they could come back and given the opportunity that they would say, it was the thing that they're known for most, that thing that, that they oriented their life around, that thing that they sacrificed for that thing they spent their time on, that they spent their money on, that thing they ultimately worshipped, really. Sometimes it's Jesus. Sometimes you start hearing the celebration of the person's faith in Jesus, and not Jesus himself, if they're a believer. It's really weird. But you can hear, without doubt, their farewell address. And 
my question for me this week was like, so what is really my one thing that I would say? What would be in, in my farewell address to like, okay, if I was just going to say, I'm going to entrust this. This is the most important thing. Here you go. This is what you need to know. And I, I'd ask you to consider this for yourself. This is what Joshua does. And I, I ask you to consider it for yourself because don't kid yourself, right? Don't start doing self-talk and make yourself sound more spiritual before God or in your mind or try to impress someone else. So this is what I would say. Let's just really be honest about what actually it would be. I mean, what is actually true about your life? How is your life really truly oriented? If no one else is there to evaluate and judge, how is it really oriented? How is it lived out? What do you genuinely believe is the, is the key to success in all areas of life? And what even is success? What are you going to tell your children? What about your friends? What about your coworkers? And let me just give you a real sobering truth. The reality is this. All of us are living out a farewell address right now. You're writing one. And I may hear some of them at your funerals. You may hear mine. You're already preparing. We're all preparing and saying something about what is most important in my life now. And everyone sees it. And we'll hear about it. And unlike a lot of us, I think if we were to say something, we might sound like a hypocrite. But Joshua is no hypocrite. His farewell address is actually summarized about God's faithfulness and man's responsibility to God's faithfulness. And unlike a lot of leaders and pastors and fathers and men, it packs power in his address because it actually matches his life. Here's what he says in verse 3, starting his address after he said, I'm old, guys. He says, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I've already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord God promised you. So the first thing in his farewell address that he wants people to to do is to remember what God's done. Joshua reminds this generation of witnesses. They watched everything from the crossing of the Jordan River. Some of them were old enough most likely to go across or to know about at least firsthand the Red Sea experience. So now, they've had these experiences. It says, remember, your witnesses to pass on the story of what God has done and how He fought for you to the next generation who is going to continue to fight. Remember, He says, how He, God, has fought for you because there's new work to do. There are new battles to fight. There are new families that are born. There are new churches that are planted every single generation. The gospel needs to go out every single generation. Just because it's been preached in 1950 in this place doesn't mean it doesn't need to be preached again, anew, afresh. So we faithfully follow God because God has proven Himself faithful to those who believed before us, who came before us. So let me just be really clear. Christianity, 
And I don't assume that everyone here believes and is a Christian. I pray that you will. But Christianity is not some leap of faith divorced from history and reason. In fact, it is rooted. Its bedrock is history. Eyewitness historical events. It is rooted in men passing on what they witnessed to the next guy, to the next guy, to us. And we are not eyewitnesses. I understand that. But without doubt, we are witnesses of the record of those who were. We're going to study 1st John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John after Easter. It's going to be an awesome study, but it's going to be, whew, it hits hard. It hits hard. You pretty much read and go, I don't even know if I'm saved. Okay, it's really, really powerful. Careful reading 1st John, okay? But here's what he says, the first verses of 1st John. The thing he's so committed to, he says this in verse 1 of 1st John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, speaking of Jesus. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Joshua tells these guys, just as John tells the church, to remember what God has really done. This isn't just some like, remember what, like you saw it. What God has really done because He knows. He knows that remembering God's specific faithfulness, not the idea that, well, God is just kind of a, faithful being, but His specific faithfulness that protects us from unbelief. It protects us from pride and from despair, especially when our faith is tested through sufferings and through trials, sometimes trials of poverty and sometimes trials of prosperity, to remind us of what is true. That is where our hope is supposed to rest. Our hope doesn't rest on what has happened in in many of the things it, it, it rests on a man named Jesus. It doesn't, your hope is not in a relationship. I hope I'm married someday, or I hope that this person loves me. Your hope is not in a title that you can aspire to. It's not in fame. It's not in power. It's not in education. It's not in a lottery ticket. It's not in a job. It's not even in a cure if you are suffering with your physical health. Your hope is in a man named Jesus for whom which there is more evidence of His existence than yours. Do you understand that? I can prove Jesus exists in a court of law better than I can prove you are who you said you are. Jesus was really here. He was really the Son of God who really came and entered human existence and took on human flesh. Jesus really lived a perfect, sinless life. For 30 plus years, from a town called Nazareth, you can still go to today, that is the armpit of Galilee, back then. Jesus, who really, willingly, died on a cross, a Roman execution, for my sins, in my place. Jesus, who really freed 
people from slavery to sin who really conquered death by three days later, rising from the dead. Really? Facts. Where's Jesus' tomb? They don't know. Why? Because his body's not there. Look at a map. They're like, it could be this one, could be this one. I can show you a lot of tombs of a lot of dead prophets are. Not Jesus. Jesus, who really ascended to heaven, who really sent his Holy Spirit to teach us, to empower us, to guide us. Jesus, who really built his church and continues to build his church until he comes back again, really. Those are the facts. Those are the things we have to remember. My job really sucks. I know, but Jesus is coming back. That's where our hope is, not in your job. We see how quickly that can be lost. But Jesus is coming back. And so the first thing that, the first thing that Joshua wants to remember is remember what God has done. This is where you have to set your hope. Then he continues and he says, you need to remember, I believe, that preaching what God has done and talking about what God has done isn't just a witness to the world. It's a witness to us. It's a witness to Israel because there's still much more work to do, more lands to conquer, more battles to rage. And so he says, therefore, we go into verse 6 here. Since, since you know, okay, since you know God's already proven himself, and he's proven himself to be a faithful husband, be a faithful bride. He's proven himself. Don't just be married, right? Anyone can get married. Anyone can get married. It's not difficult. Go find a sea captain or a judge. With me, it's a little more difficult. Okay. But being a faithful bride, that takes work. Here's what it says. Therefore, verse 6, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of Law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. You shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done this day. So Joshua reminds them, okay, God does what he says, therefore do what he says. It's pretty simple. Now, the standard of obedience is God's word. What we ought to do and ought not to do is told to us by God's word. And success is dependent upon obedience. Now, I know when I say success... There are all kinds of connotations that you, you, oh, what do you mean? Material success. and this. Let's be careful where we're going. God may decide to glorify himself most by your poverty. But he will give you peace and comfort and content, contentment really is the definition of success. Contentment is what we all aspire to regardless. If I said I'll give you contentment and not really telling you what that meant, you would, say, you would most likely say, I would take it, because that's ultimately what we have. If we have that, who cares what else we have? Now, what he says, though, about obedience also has its own connotations. Because I hate any time and every time I talk about obedience, I know that a lot of y'all, dang it, I said that first service too. Where do Texas comes from? I'm not Southern, but it, it, this works. 
Okay? I know a lot of you, when I say obedience, suddenly like red lights and alarms, legalism and all these like, oh, what is self-righteousness, oh, whatever. As if believers are expected to do nothing. That's so, we should be able to say, because the Bible says, obey. Well, what do you, you know, theologically, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean obey. That's what I mean. I mean, do what God says. Well, I know, but I just, I, I, I don't do it perfect. I, I didn't suggest you did it perfectly, but you can still make a volitional decision to do it. I believe, so I'll just clarify, so there's no misunderstandings, and I don't get some freaky emails. I believe that salvation, a right position with the one true God, comes through faith in the sinless life that Jesus lived and the death that he experienced for me. That's where my value, my worth, my acceptance comes from, nothing I could do. And that truth, something that is a gift for me to even believe, changes me. Or it should. And the question I have is, having been saved by Jesus in that way, do I align myself with God's Word? Do I actually delight in it? Do I fight the temptation to turn away from it? Is that what's happened to me? And if this is not my disposition, if this is not desirable to me, if, if God and His Word is not the standard by which I really want to govern my life, let's be honest, you don't worship God. I mean, it, it seems to me pretty clear what Joshua is saying. I mean, we, worship, we are creatures of worship. We worship something. But the truth is, we either worship God, who made us, or we worship creation by making it into a God. And people are creation. There's all kinds of things you can worship. But an old, dying Joshua warns them to resist idols and to actively cling to the Lord. Cling to Him. And it's the same word that is used for a man cleaving to his wife. It's, it's not a word that really describes an effort for moral behavior, if you will, but it describes something that's joined together and separable in this intimate relationship. That's what clinging to the Lord means. We cling to God. It is an act of devotion. It's more than just reading His Word, it's living His Word. And I know we begin to put up, again, self-righteous marks like, well, I read my Bible this much, I've memorized these many verses. I'm not talking about that. Talk about the disposition of your life. How you orient your life. When you come to a decision, does God's Word govern what you decide? When you have relationships with anyone, is, are those relationships governed by God's Word? To know how you ought love that person or how you ought speak to that person. An orientation, a complete disposition about God's word. It's, it's more than singing songs. Worship is more than preaching sermons. And worship is more than even feeding the homeless. I actually believe our greatest aspect of worship is obedience to God's word. It's not just emotional things that you experience passively, like, you know, I just didn't feel very worshipful today. 
Worship, without doubt, is understood by Joshua as obedience. So it is worship to align your life with God's Word. It is worship for you to aspire to have a biblical marriage. It is worship for you to to aspire to have God's Word govern how you parent. It's worship, an act of worship for you to align how you do your finances in accordance with God's Word. It is worship for you to work with excellence as unto the Lord at work. It is worship for you to obediently suffer in all humility and taking joy. That is worship. It is worship in how we love. It's worship even in how you eat or drink. Because you can do it in such a way that's aligned with God's word or not. That's complete self-indulgence or is an act of worship. Obedience and worship I believe are inseparable. So the second truth he says is cling to God by devoting yourself to his word because this is where you're going to find success and joy and ultimately what he means is contentment. And then he gets even more specific as he's speaking to these people in verses 9 through 13. He clarifies that his call for obedience is actually a charge just to love God. He says this in verse 9, For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. And here, this verse is so powerful. Be very careful. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they will be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your side and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground the Lord has given you. The call to faithfulness, the command even to obey, is simply a charge to be careful to love God. To love the Lord. It's easier to hear that for us than it is to, like, obey. I'm not sure why, other than we have a real screwed up understanding of love, I think. It's to love God, to delight yourself in the Lord, to be most satisfied in the Lord. And if you don't strive, to obey God's word. If you're, you know, I'm just not religious like that. I've heard that many times. If you're not careful or intentional, and I'm not saying perfect, that word does not enter into there. Because we'd all be excluded. But careful, intentional about knowing God and his word, if that is not your disposition, then it's not because you don't love God's word, It's because you don't love God. That's really what it's about. A love for God and His Word is is not the benchmark to strive for so that I can arrive as a Christian someday. The benchmark, I should say, the love of the Lord and His Word is an essential characteristic of God's people. It is beyond anything else. Beyond how, how good you are as a husband or wife. 
beyond how successful you are as a parent and how wonderful or terrible your children are, beyond how successful you are in this world at your job and how even humble you are as a person, like, oh, man, that guy was just really a nice person and he really was a servant. Beyond all those things, the most important thing that even, I believe, dictates all those things is your disposition to the Word of God. What role does that play in your life? Now, in Deuteronomy 6, a section of Scripture for the Jewish culture called the Shema, and this is the, the bedrock, if you will, of who they are as a people. And it is the, an important prayer for the Jews. It's usually the first section of Scripture that uh, they teach their children. It was the first verse that I taught my son, Deuteronomy 6.5. I can still hear him saying it. He used to butcher it pretty bad, but it was uh, very cute. It's, this, it's the section of Scripture that's recited today, even in synagogues. It's a section of Scripture that's rolled up in a little scroll and nailed to the doorpost. I have one of mine because my mother was Jewish, and it was a part of a cultural experience that we had. It is the prayer that many Jews today recite at least twice daily, once in the morning, once in the evening. And it's found in Deuteronomy 6, and normally it uh, begins in verse 4, but I'll read the first couple so you understand. But listen to the heart of, the, of what the life of the Jew is supposed to be about. It says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me, Moses speaking, to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. Legacy. By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Here's where the prayer Shema begins. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Think about, how do you teach your children to love God? seems pretty clear. It's about obedience. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. Do you do that? Do I do that? And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, there's a lot of things that not a lot of people are watching. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and shall be all frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. See, the truth is, God's people remember what God has done, and they devote themselves to God's word because they love God. And that seems, it seems like a strange thing to say, I think, maybe you don't, to say, be careful to love the Lord. But not when you begin to see that obedience and love are actually fairly inseparable. And if you don't believe me, then let me just tell you what Jesus said, who has the interesting reputation of just like, oh, love and do whatever you want. Like, no, I just love you. He actually spoke very specifically about love. And you can read in in John 14 and 15, but I'll just read one passage of it. In John 14 and verse 21, here's what he said. And I'm trying to understand it because my Greek's not perfect, but it seems pretty plain to me, so maybe we'll be okay. Verse 21 said, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, 
He it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I don't understand. Well, unbelieving Judas asks, Lord, how is it that you shall manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, Well, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. What do you mean, Jesus? I mean, you'll keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Obedience and loving God seems pretty much a partnership. I've told my sons that when they've been disobedient. I love you, Dad. No, you don't. You think about that? You know what the Bible says about love, son? No. It says it's deeply connected with obedience. So every time you tell me you love me and then you disobey, I'm not really sure what to think. Oh. So you don't love me or you want to obey? Which one is it, right? Because he's not going to say, well, I don't love you, Dad. The truth is, love and obedience go together. And it doesn't surprise us, I guess, because we can understand the idea of falling in love with the world. God personifies the world's wisdom in Proverbs as an adulteress who's alluring us. And though theologically we may not be able to fall out of love in this covenant relationship that really God decided to have with us, we can certainly, it seems, grow closer or further apart intimately within that relationship. Happens in marriage all the time. Just because you have a ring on your finger doesn't mean that there's growth and intimacy and love. The truth is, this happens when we simply love other things more than God. That's called sin. Sin is when you love something else, find something more satisfying, you find more joy in than God, who is intended to provide you with that. And he uses the same word here, cling. That same intimate, cleaving, cling word to describe how we get intimately involved and devoted to the world. And even if we are a bride, we end up being a very unfaithful one, and so we must be careful to love God. I mean, just, here's what I sat on all week. Am I careful to do that? And what does that mean? Do I have intention? Am I aspiring to to obey? However imperfectly, I may aspire to do that. But can I get to a place where, like Paul, where he says, Man, I could lose everything in Philippians chapter 3. I count everything as loss that I might gain Christ. Everything as rubbish, which is garbage, in comparison to getting Christ. So the most important truth Joshua wants to share, remember what God has done, devote yourself to what he says, and love him more than anything else in this world. We'll close it down here in 14 and 16, though. So for two-thirds of his address, Joshua has had a speech that's been pretty uplifting, if you think about it. I mean, God has fought for you. He's fought for you. He's kept his promises to you. God's spoken to you. God loves you. God's been faithful to you. You're like, yeah! Who wouldn't want God? 
Positive motivations, right? And at 99% of churches, that's what you hear. Welcome to 1%. Because that's what Joshua does. We talk about the love of God, but then the last part here, he goes, God's also faithful in another way. He says in verse 14, Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, literally today. He's like, I'm going to die, like, soon. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of those good things has failed. And everybody's like, yeah! Thank you, Joshua, for the Newt Rockney Love Jesus speech. Verse 15. But, just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord, not just the natural consequences, not just the brokenness of things, the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until He has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which He commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that He has given to you. So quite frankly, unlike what I think are a lot of today's pansified leaders, Joshua's not. And he intends, if he's going to have a last go at it, he's going to give all the beautiful promises of God's goodness, yes, but he's also going to give the promises of God's judgments. Make no mistake, no mistake about it, God is faithful. You can say that to anyone. God is faithful, God is faithful, he always does what he says he will do. And everything he says he will do will always come to pass. He is faithful both to his promises and his warnings. It echoes back to the experience they had at Shechem where they were sitting there celebrating a worship experience. They divided Israel over two mountains. One read all the blessings, every one of them, to young, old, educated, uneducated leader, follower. And they also read all the cursing so that everyone could hear everything. In other words, here's what Joshua says, and here's how we'll close. Very plainly, that the blessings of God, according to Joshua here, depended upon whether or not the people obeyed his commands. If they fought, and sometimes it feels like a fight, to love the Lord, if they were careful to love, intentional to love the Lord, even if they failed, they would experience blessing, if not in this world, then in the next. But if, instead, they pursued and fought for their lust, they sacrificed for their idols, they basically lived a life that was self-centered and governed by whatever they happened to want, they would be judged by God. If not in this world then definitely in the next. So these are the last words of a leader with a deep concern for legacy. He doesn't have control of the result. He only has control of what he says. 
And he has a commitment to make sure that everyone hears every word before he dies so there's no mistake about what he understood as the truth and what of most importance. And so, I hesitate to say this because I'll probably walk out and get hit by a bus. But, I stand before you as if this would be my farewell address. And I would be remiss to not tell you the whole truth. And so I tell you this, there is one true God that created all things and He created a very beautiful, wonderful, good world. And He gave that world to men. And men, instead of pursuing God and loving God, rejected Him. And they rebelled against God and they rejected His Word and as a result, the world fell. And all relationships, because the relationship with God was broken, were destroyed. Relationships with men, with themselves, with each other, husbands, wives, families, bosses, all that stuff was destroyed and broken. But God had a plan. And He really sent His Son, Jesus, to earth to save sinners. And this Jesus really lived a perfect life, and this Jesus really died the death that every sinner deserves. And he really rose from the dead. And in his name alone, do all roads lead to God? No! They don't. In fact, most roads but one lead completely opposite to God. But there is one name given under heaven through which men must be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. And I will tell you, as if this is my farewell address, that loving the world more, or loving anything more than God, has eternal consequences. It has eternal consequences. And it does, contrary to what is becoming popular belief today, it does matter how you respond to Jesus in this life. It does matter. So I'm going to call it like it is. I'm not going to play some kind of theological gymnastics to make yourself feel better about, you know, your lack of faith. The fact that even as a Christian, you cling to everything but God in this world. That you really, when push comes to shove, you don't really care about God's word. I'm concerned for you. Joshua would be concerned for you. And so I tell you, if you are a non-believer or think you're a believer, but you really don't love God, repent. Believe in the free gift of salvation. Put your faith in Jesus because whatever you're going to do on your own ain't going to cut mustard. And Receive eternal life or experience eternal death. And I will tell you, at my funeral, I took a long walk with my son on Saturday with the intent of telling him what he's to say at my funeral. He's only 10, but the boy can preach, okay? I said, this is what you best say at my funeral, son. He looks at me, what? I said, if I die, we might be walking and I might get hit by a car. I don't know, but you need to understand what is most important to me. I don't want any 
guesses of what my farewell speech is going to be. And I told him that I don't want you standing up or anyone standing up and talking about well, how nice a guy Sam was or how many good things he did or foolish, funny things he did or even how much I love Jesus. Rather, son, or anyone else, if you can't make it, I don't keep someone there to step up and preach this. And you preach that I was an undeserving, terrible, more than I would ever admit, sinner. Broken. Deserving of death and judgment. But Jesus loved me. And Jesus forgave me. Somebody better preach that. None of these funerals are like, oh, he was great. Better be about Jesus. I'm a mess. Please. What's going to be your farewell address? Because... Not everyone's going to get 110 years like Joshua. Consider the farewell address that you are actually preaching right now. Through your life, you're entrusting something of what is most important to you. And I do have hope that even if you feel like as a Christian, you've wasted your life up to this point, just think, I love thinking about the thief on the cross. Where a moment of faithfulness outweighed a lifetime of rebellion. Confess. Believe. Enjoy. Savor the goodness that is God and come to the table where you participate actively in the body of Jesus that was broken for you and the blood that was shed for you to forgive you and cleanse you and give you contentment in this life to His glory to be with Him again in heaven.